Our Heavenly Father, we come um, as was prayed, uh, Lord, totally dependent on you. Uh, we come totally aware that uh, we are by nature people of uh, earthly wisdom and uh, we need your wisdom. Uh, we need your wisdom uh, that is uh, pure and peaceable and, uh, and Lord, uh, full of love. We thank you for being such a gracious God. Uh, we pray that you would draw near. We pray that you would help us. Uh, we pray that you would give us this day our daily spiritual bread and uh, forgive us for our sins. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, so we've been just finished the book of James. We're now on to Ruth. And the only reason I'm not speaking from Ruth this morning is because you've already done Ruth. And so I thought I'd do one of the messages from James. And um, I got into trouble with James uh, most weeks. Normally when I preach, I'd get feedback anyway, good and bad. Uh, but with James, I got intense feedback. Uh, it was like people were queuing up wanting to discuss every message. And I was thinking, I must be either preaching uh, better or worse, I'm not sure. But I put it down to, I think, this point, because I struggled with James as well. Uh, we love theory, but, but we really don't like practice. Um, I, I love the theory of dieting. I can tell you about every diet. Um, I, I can talk about the theories of all the different types of diets, whether you cut out carbs, whether you have fruit only in the morning, whether you... I can tell you all the principles because I've read on it. I love the theory of it. I hate the practice, as you can see. Um, James' main message is you need to convert the theory into practice. Uh, when, when it comes to the Bible, you, you've got to... Uh, bring it into practice. He, he, his last in the last chapter, he, he looks at wisdom. He's saying there's earthly wisdom and there's godly wisdom, and uh, he says uh, one is self-seeking; it's full of bitter envy. Uh, the other is pure and it's peaceable. Uh, so the last verse of chapter three says something like this: "But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield." full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Uh, he ends this chapter on a high note, doesn't he? And really, most of us, if we were writing something, we'd end on a high note. We'd take our wins and run. Uh, but he, he's not like that. He says, now I want to come back to you again. In chapter 4, he says, I'd like to now apply it. I'd like you to think about uh, how it affects you in your everyday life. And he asks the question, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? And when he asks the question, he's not really saying, please put your hands up and give me an answer. Uh, he knows the answer. He's rebuking us, isn't he? And so this morning, uh, my job is to explain the rebuke. And our job together is to submit ourselves and to humble ourselves and to hear uh, the rebuke of the Bible. Uh, so the, I, I, my normal plan is usually to go under three headings, and I'll do the same again today. The first heading is a question. Why does God allow war? Um, you know, at first when we get to a situation where there is a war, we try to explain the war uh, in human terms, in economic terms. 
uh, we say a country is very poor, they need more. And because they need more, that's why they're going to war. And so North Korea's aggression is because the country is poor. Uh, Their the nuclear threat in recent years uh, was really just a smokescreen. They were never ever going to be a threat. They just wanted to get the attention of China and the attention of the USA to give them some humanitarian aid. Uh, Kim Jong-un is not a murderous evil dictator, no, he's a nice guy. He really wants to make sure that the need of his people is known. And so he's just venting. Uh, and if we come to something like the Arab Spring, we'll say it's, it's a political or an economic problem really. Um, the spring was not driven by selfish, murderous uh, uh, revolutionists. No, no, they were nice guys, they were really victims. They were being oppressed by evil dictators and uh, they needed a new system that fairly shared all the oil. They needed democracy and unless they had democracy they wouldn't really have peace, prosperity and, um, and uh, you know, harmony in there. But when we, when we look at all of that, we say, hang on a minute, no, that's not quite right. Because when we look at the end result, it doesn't seem to look as if those things actually did happen. And so then, what do we do? Well, in the Second World War, uh, once they got over thinking about what caused the war and uh, how it was not economic and not this and not that, uh, they decided to blame God. Uh, that, that's the second uh, thing. They, they, the most common question was, why does God allow war? And the question, once again, didn't really want an answer. It was not an innocent question, was it? It was really a question to blame God. Saying, if God is good, then why does he allow bad stuff? Um, and we've all asked that question, haven't we? Uh, if we're going to be honest. And James says, before you ask that question, go one step back. Um, before you ask that question, uh, ask yourself what starts the war. Uh, don't ask yourself who permits a war. Go, go back one step and, and say, where do wars and fights come from among you? Verse 1, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your, member, in your members? You see, all the fights start in our heart, in our desires. Uh, wars are not something more evil than our everyday fights, our everyday disagreements, our everyday disputes. They're just a natural extension of them. Uh, they're just a bigger, if you like, picture of what happens in the small thing. Peter Williams, he says, the essential difference between national conflicts or wars and personal disputes between men is only a matter of degree. The root cause in both cases is the same. You pick that up, look at verse 2. James is saying exactly the same thing. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You see, it's selfishness. It causes a blind spot, doesn't it? Uh, we, we feel we deserve something. Uh, we feel we must have it. Uh, we feel that uh, we want something and we're willing to move mountains to get it. Um, We'll do anything to justify why it might be right. And um, we're not going to give up. And we're going to keep pursuing it. And even after we get bits and pieces of it, and it really still feels a little empty, well, that's not going to stop us. We're going to keep pursuing it till we get it. 
in June 2018, a guy called Ron Medic uh, was put in jail. Uh, you probably know the story. He's the richest ever Australian to be convicted of murder. He got 39 years as a sentence. His father migrated from Croatia to Australia, and uh, it was after the, world, after the First World War, and he lived in Queensland on a farm. Uh, Ron and his brother were born in 48 and then 49, and in their teens they moved down to Sydney and moved to, uh, into Cabramatta. So we own him as ours. Uh, he's one of our famous residents. Uh, don't laugh because it's going to backfire on you in a minute. Um, they ran movie theatres. Uh, they um, uh, went into filmmaking and property development. Uh, when his dad died, the boys uh, took over together and they continued in property development, but then they decided to expand into horse racing and uh, they even owned a big hotel in Warwick Farm. They did many deals and they constantly did deals and they made more and more money. Their biggest deal was Leichhardt, so maybe he's one of your people. And uh, he owned a shopping centre, sold it, and he sold it for 112 million. And Medich always would say in the press, he was a big supporter of Gough Whitlam, and uh, he would say in the press, uh, West is best, I'm going to stay in the West. I'm never going to go to live near those snobs uh, uh, in the inner city and uh, right across onto the other side in the East. But once he got that cash in his hand, he, he couldn't resist the temptation. He moved right into Point Piper. And uh, once he moved into Point Piper, surprise, surprise, he had no friends. No one liked him there. And they used to make fun of him. In fact, a lot of the jokes were that his money bought his friends. Um, he, he couldn't find people to enter into any more businesses with him in the East either. So he had to go back to his mates, back from the West. And so he found two guys, they're both dodgy guys, uh, Michael McGurk and, and Lucky Gat Gatilari, who you know, the boxer. And so they're in these deals, and weird deals, like they bought a funeral business to bury Aboriginals in um, uh, Northern Territory. They, they had function centers uh, for weddings, and then McGurk had a debt collection business, and his biggest claim to fame was that he was able to collect money from a guy in Point Piper by blowing up his garage. Well, this was reputation damage, wasn't it, for Medich? And, and Medich was uh, very upset that he was not liked, he was not making more money, he was not really enjoying the successes of life. His wife left him, uh, she took the kids and ran away, and he blamed all the mess on McGurk. And he saw the only way to really fix all his problems was to have McGurk killed. And so he paid his mate, Lucky Gatilari, $500,000, who went and killed McGurk. And uh, the end is that he got convicted in June 2018 and sentenced to life, and um, it's a sad story because he had so much, but he just wanted more. He was so sure he was spot on, that it wasn't his fault, that he would do anything to get exactly what he wanted. Uh, today he's in jail. He could not see his selfish lust, but I bet he sees it today, because he's got $88 million today, his current estimation of his wealth, but he has to ask himself, what good is it in jail? Lord Acton. Lord Acton said, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, James says, Lord Acton's wrong. Uh, James says, uh, you're corrupt. 
I'm corrupt. We're all corrupt. With or without power, we all have bad hearts. And James agrees that if you're put in power, you're going to act corruptly and powerfully. That's true. Uh, but, but James, this first question, is pointing you to the fact that it's not whether you've got power or not. It's the fact that you've got a problem with your heart. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Um, you, you know, Medici's story is shocking, isn't it? But James's question is even more shocking. You see, when he says you, he's speaking about the church. He's speaking about the gathered people of God. Uh, in the Second World War, we lost 25 million soldiers. We lost 55 million civilians. And that should be shocking. Uh, James is saying the biggest shock is when you have a fight in the annual general meeting. The, the bigger fight is when you, amongst yourselves, the Christians, are fighting. You see, we're not to have worldly wisdom guiding and ruling our relationships. Uh, it's got to be godly wisdom. When selfishness creeps into the church, when worldly wisdom is brought into the church and pushed to its natural conclusion, well, well you're going to have war in the church. You're going to have coveting, fights, uh, and you're going to be murdering each other with gossip and you'll even have divisions which will eventually break and destroy the church. Godly wisdom on the other hand is quite opposite. It's calming. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy. It's gentle. It doesn't ignore the truth. It, it, it finds a way to be fair and just. It makes sure there's no partiality or hypocrisy. Its goal is purity, uh, but it's peace and righteousness and harmony as well. Uh, don't ask yourself, why does God allow war? Uh, James is asking you to ask yourself, where do wars and fights come from among you? You, you see, he's pointing us to examine our hearts. And that's the second point. We must examine our motives. It's hard to examine ourselves, isn't it? When you're in a fight especially, it's really hard to be objective. Uh, if we were to examine the last fight we had, uh, we would all agree it's the other person's fault. It certainly had nothing to do with us. Um, we, we would not be able to see our desires for pleasure. We would not be able to see our lust for more. We would not be able to see our desire for ease. Uh, all we want is the other party to lose, the other party to be taught a lesson, and we want us to be proved right and for all to know we were right. Uh, can we look at Cain, for instance, when we read the uh, text this morning? Uh, he's the first murderer in history. He kills his brother Abel, and we're told it's because Abel offered uh, a better sacrifice, a sacrifice that pleased God, Cain, on the other hand, turned up with his veggies, and, and they were just not acceptable. Um, it was not pleasing to God. Now, the obvious thing in all our minds is that he should have just said sorry. He should have repented. Uh, in fact, the invitation from God is, if you just turn up with the better sacrifice, will you not be received? 
But, but sorry is a hard word to say, isn't it? Uh, even Elton John uh, says it's the hardest words to say. Um, all he had to do was stop inventing his own ways on how to approach God and, and come to God in a way that God called him. Instead, he had to prove he was right. And he had to be sure that he could continue in this pathway and still have God's approval. Huge mistake. And as it works in him, and as it festers, and as it builds up, it gets to the point where he murders his own brother. And he's so jealous uh, that it cannot stay inside the heart. Yes, it started in the heart, but it has to come out. It has to burst like a pimple, and he kills his brother. And you're probably sitting there today saying, well, I could never do that. I could never be a Ron Medich. I could never be a Hitler. Um, well, uh, I, I remember once sitting and listening to Paul Washer in a conference, and he's the wrong person to listen to on this topic, uh, because uh, no matter how bad you already feel, he's only going to make you feel worse. Uh, he's speaking on total depravity. Uh, and he says, uh, in simple terms, well, we all agree, that if you... Um, If you don't do something, it's not because you haven't got a bad heart. It's because you just haven't had the right opportunity. The problem is not that your heart is better than someone else's. The problem is that you don't have the circumstances that allow you to do what you want to do. Um, and he, he says, we all have the same sinful heart. And he goes to little kids. He says, let's look at little kids, a bit like the kids talk. And he says, that they are quite open. They're quite willing to openly display exactly what they feel and believe. That they will gladly show you their ungodly desire for something and they'll act in a brutal way, whether it be to belt up their sister or whatever, to make sure they get what they want or refuse to share what they don't want to share. That um, They're so relentless that we all know this is true. We've been in the shopping centre. We've gone into the shopping centre. We've heard the child screaming and throwing a massive tantrum until they get the very thing they wanted, and then they're an angel. Uh, you want to give them a hug. Uh, Washer says, if you press the right buttons at, at the right time, in the right situation, um, you will explode. And he says, get your imagination working. Take that little child who throws a tantrum and uh, at the same time is a wonderful angel when they're given exactly what they wanted. And imagine that child has the strength of a gorilla. Now when the child has the strength of a gorilla, the mother's carrying the baby and the baby sees the mother's watch and says, what a beautiful watch, can I have the watch? And mum says, no. And the baby says, I really would like the watch. And the mum says, no. Well, by the third time, with the strength of a gorilla, the child will rip his baby's, his mother's arm off and rip the watch off and take it, if that's what the strength the baby has. He says, and the only reason why mothers have their arms is because babies just don't have the strength. Um, you see, that's depravity. 
um, Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, which were read for us. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. You see, sin's lying at the door. The picture's the picture of a lion, isn't it? Wanting to pounce. And sin is waiting to overpower you and force you to do the very thing you know you should not do. Your jealousy is making you blind. Your envy and your bitterness is getting you totally off balance. And your lust for revenge is causing you to be illogical and causing you to take steps that just don't make sense, but you can't see it. And God's warning Cain, isn't he? He's saying, you have to rule sin. Don't let sin rule you. He's saying, you've got to speak to your heart and really rebuke your own heart. Saying, stop being self-centered. Stop the envy. Stop the anger. Stop the rebellion. Or else you're going to do something grievous, is what, what God is telling Cain. You'll regret it because it has to lead to action. It'll be like a pimple that must burst. Now, how can you spot if you're getting near that situation? How can you identify in advance, uh, I'm heading down a bad way? James says, look at your prayer life. Uh, examine your secret prayers. Says, what are you asking for? Uh, what's the focus of your prayer? Once again, I'll take you back to the Second World War, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was listening to the prayers of people in England and he noticed how they were praying earnestly for the war uh, there was not a lot of prayer in England once the war came prayer lives boomed and but he listened to what they were sincerely praying for and what were they sincerely praying for they were praying for peace they were praying for the war to end uh, he noticed that they were not praying for an end to the sin that caused the war. People didn't realize or didn't want to acknowledge that it was sin that caused that war. They did not observe that England had morally descended into filth as a society. And they had all kinds of sin before the war. And perhaps the war is exactly what God brought to them, to arouse them and to shock them. Uh, with just how gross sin really is. You want sin? Well, I'll show you sin in a big way. And then you'll realize how bad it is. And then he goes on and he says something like, let's pretend that war is the sin. Not that the sin caused the war, but war is the sin. Uh, in which case, it's an honorable prayer. They're praying for sin to end, aren't they? They're praying for war to cease. Uh, but he still says it's hypocrisy. Because if they really wanted sin to cease, why are they only asking for one sin to cease? Why are they not asking for every sin to cease? Why are they not asking for adultery to cease? Why are they not asking for foul language to cease? Why are they not asking for drunkenness to cease? Uh, why are they only asking for only wars to cease? 
You see, it's hypocrisy. It's a problem of the heart, isn't it? The heart is far away. The lips are close, but the heart is far away. And we can be like this. But we can want the outcome, uh, the trouble to go away. But we don't want to pray for the sin to stop. We can pray for the other person who's at fault uh, to wake up and to repent and to change or to possibly even be out of our lives. Uh, but we don't ask God to expose to us our own sin. We don't ask God to expose to us our own desires for pleasure, our own desires for self. Uh, we don't want to pray for that gift of repentance. Uh, we don't want to pray for the change in our lives. What we want to pray for is the happy outcome. And James is accusing his reader in verse 2 and verse 3 of this. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Uh, examine your secret prayers when you're in a bonfire. Uh, it'll tell you much about where your heart is. And then lastly, um, we must pray. Um, the temptation is to think James is saying, well, stop praying. Uh, I don't think he's saying that. Um, we all pray. James is pretty sure we all pray. Uh, and what he's saying is our prayers generally expose our priorities. Uh, our prayer requests reveal if we love God uh, with all our heart or if we love ourselves with all our soul and all our strength. Once again, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he says we pray when we're under stress. We pray when we can't control everything. If we could manipulate an event, we'll manipulate it. If we can manage it ourselves, we'll manage it. But, but when we can't do anything, that, that's when we pray. Um, but when circumstances are totally beyond our control, and we're in this zone that's not a comfortable place, uh, then we'll pray. We'll pray for things to be well, for peace. Uh, we, we'll pray for all the things we want that'll make life easier. Uh, we pray for ease. We pray for comfort. And, and we'll certainly call it the blessings of God. Uh, but, but really, we're, we're really wanting things for ourselves. We don't start off by adoring God. But we don't start off with thanking God. But we don't remember the blessings that we've got, even though we've not even asked for them. Uh, we probably haven't prayed for rain as much as we should have in this drought, and we've got bucket loads after probably a few pathetic prayers from God's people. Uh, but we don't say thank you. Uh, and despite our prayerlessness, we receive so, many, so much. Um, we really want to listen to God. Uh, we, we really want to pray and ask God, what do we need to learn? What, what do we need to change in our life? Uh, the sad thing is when we come to prayer, we often think we have a right to be heard. We're one of the good guys. Uh, we're one of the guys who have a right to come right into God's presence and say, this is what I need, 
and it's your turn to deliver up now because I've served you for so long. Um, we, we need help now because I've called on you in the past. I need better finances, I need more friends, I need more gadgets. Uh, why? Because I'm one of your people. Um, in the past George Mueller prayed and you answered all his prayers. Uh, McShane prayed and he got what he wanted. Uh, why not me? We, we don't take into account how they lived. We don't take into account what they prayed for. We, we don't take into account the plan of God in their time and the plan of God in ours. We just come to God and ask amiss. John Hyde, uh, his title was Praying Hyde and we think it's because uh, it was a big prayer. Uh, but, but uh, his first uh, early prayer request was that he would uh, burn out for God. He wouldn't rust out, he said. And sure enough, he died at the age of 46. He got his first prayer request. Uh, but in those 46 years, um, it, it, it's quite amazing. For a bloke who couldn't really preach well, is what they said, he, he was not ideal as a translator. He was not the mold that you would choose to send out in the mission. But God used him mightily. He was sent to India and he went as a missionary to India after his brother died as a missionary. And so rather than saying missionary business is dangerous, he deliberately went after his brother died. And he went to a place in India, in the Punjab, in the north. And um, with all his weaknesses, his biographer says this of him, he says, I'm impressed that the one great characteristic of John Hyde was holiness. I do not mention prayerfulness, for prayer was his life work. I do not especially call attention to soul winning, for his power as a soul winner was due to his Christ-likeness. Um, so he wasn't really effective in anything he did. Uh, but, but he was known to pray often because the bloke who shared his room with him saw him often pray. Um, in fact, he called him a fanatic. He said um, he would miss a meal sometimes because he would be up in his room praying. People wouldn't know where he thought he was absent-minded, but he was praying. He would often miss sleep. He would get up in the middle of the night feeling that he really had to pray. And his main prayers were, were really interesting. His main prayer was that he wanted Indians to become Christians. Uh, his large proportion of his prayer was not even that. It was that he wanted to confess his sin. He was constantly confessing his sin. In fact, when he was praying, his uh, flatmate said, uh, it was like fire was burning up his bones. Um, if he prayed because of another brother's sin, if he saw another person's sin and he prayed for that person and in their sin, he would immediately stop and confess his sin for speaking about his brother behind his back. Um, it, it's an incredible story, isn't it? Um, uh, here's one of his recorded prayers. It is self in some shape that comes between us and God. So self must be dealt with as Christ was dealt with. Self must be crucified. 
then indeed Christ is lifted up in our lives and he cannot fail. He cannot fail to attract souls to himself. You see, James is really saying that in the negative, isn't he? You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Uh, John Hyde was nothing like that. John Hyde was uh, really uh, quite a different ilk. Now, now the possible temptation is for us to uh, just give up. I don't think James is saying that. You see, James's thesis for all the book is really true Christianity versus false Christianity. He's saying that when you come in a church, you're going to find the real deal, but every now and then you're going to find the fake. And he wants everyone to be the real deal. His heart is that we will all repent and turn to God and seek God for a new heart that we might actually be um, real Christians and that we would call on God. Um, the disciples, they're Christians, aren't they? And they come to Jesus and they actually ask Jesus. They say, teach us to pray. And we have the wonderful, the Lord's Prayer, where, where uh, Jesus says to them, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, there, there's the start of true Christian prayer. But that's when your prayer is telling you you are a Christian. Uh, when your heart is for uh, worldly, not worldly wisdom, but godly wisdom. When it's seeking uh, God's name to be respected, God's kingdom to be expanded. When it's seeking for his will and not our will. But when we want our sins forgiven when we're totally dependent on Him. Uh, otherwise our prayers just descend into like this spiritual ATM where we just think we've got this encrypted card, we can go and put it in the slot and just demand what we need. Um, we're commanded to pray, we know, don't we? 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I desire therefore that men everywhere uh, pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. James is saying the same thing in the negative. Uh, he's not saying give up. He's saying call on God. Uh, ask God to do a work in your heart. He's saying the church should be a people that come and pray together. Uh, they should not be quarreling. They should not be wrath and anger. He's encouraging us to seek the mercy of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again uh, for uh, your word. We thank you again for your spirit uh, that renews us. Thank you again for uh, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who, uh, because of his uh, wonderful sacrifice, takes in on his account that we might have uh, righteousness, that we might have access uh, to you, our Father. Uh, please, we pray, forgive us of our sin and, uh, Lord, we pray. Be, you would be merciful to us in Jesus' name. Amen.